This morning we're going to begin our, I begin, but go back to our study of Acts. And we're in this first section. Uh, and this first section is Acts 1 through 11. And we're dealing with the heavenly departure that we're going to call it. So uh, we're dealing with those first 11 verses. And so what I'd like to do is kind of read those first 11 verses this morning as we've been doing each each and every week as um, we just kind of set our context so we kind of know what we're looking at. We're just moving through this in one block, a verse at a time, a couple verses at a time, just as we uh, as it comes, we're not really rushing anything. So we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, the first account I can post, Theophilus, about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, according to them, um, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at that, at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness, witness both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. So in the last few weeks, we've got down to verse 4, and we ended last week at verse 4, so we'll begin this week in verse 5. And in verse 5, we we will deal uh, with the subject that he's talking about, a baptism here, moving toward his uh, dissension. And he is speaking to them. And so he says there, for John, that's John the Baptist, uh, baptized with water, but you, that's the apostles whom he's speaking to, the ones that he's gathered together, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he compares that, John the Baptist, to what they're going to be baptized to some... I'm talking like my daughter now. Um... When she got baptized, I'll, when Lila, the littlest one, when she got baptized some, I don't know, a few months ago, whatever, uh, she kept telling us she was going to get baptized is what she was calling it. So, well, sorry, I was reliving those moments. So, so we're looking at this now, uh, that John's baptizing. So what did John really baptize for if we're thinking about this? Um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke, uh, chapter three, Verse 16, we will kind of see 
what John the Baptist is baptizing for. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 16. Make our way that way. Too far. All right. Let's back up 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to all of them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand, uh, in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when John baptizes here, you look, he says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming later that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So now we have Jesus as he's talking to his disciples, discussing this very incident that he said. So what was John's baptism for? What did he have in mind when he was doing it? So when he was doing it, he was preparing the hearts of the Israeli people, the Israelites. He was preparing their hearts. And what is he preparing their hearts for? He is preparing their hearts to be purged. He is preparing their uh, hearts to be transformed. And their hearts are going to be transformed by what? What transforms our hearts? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what transforms us. It is what initiates our salvation. It, it, it is what calls us into that salvific relationship. And here, now that he's told them that John preaches that baptism of repentance, but he said, but he's doing it just to prepare them for that purging, just to prepare them for that cleansing. And it's going to usher in the new messianic era. That is the era that's coming. Now, that is the air because we're going to, the, as we look in the Old Testament, when we look to Jesus, what do we look? We're looking to Jesus. So when we read the New Testament, we're re, or the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, we are looking forward to Christ. And if we read the Old Testament, with the exception that we're really looking back at what's already been crucified, uh, that Christ already been crucified, other than the Gospels that are giving us that story and of that account. So, but then he tells them, not many days from now. So, there is this progressive nature going on in this narrative. You, you have saw that this Luke begins that first account till the day when he was taken up to heaven. And it begins in verse four that really that narrative, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave. But then he says, John baptized this. There's this continuation kind of in this narrative. And this whole prophecy, uh, it, it's going to deal all the way up until Pentecost. And Pentecost is the really the day in Acts chapter 2 when we get there that we can see that the Holy Spirit is really, believers are endowed with the Holy Spirit, that you see the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, that day of Pentecost, you'll see that spirit that is delivered to the Gentiles. Um, and it's really going to give a further distinction between John's water baptism that we see that he was doing 
uh, early on to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think I'd, I'd have to look at this. I haven't looked in a while, but I believe there are seven or eight different types of baptism in Scripture. Um, I know there's the baptism of Moses, the baptism of the Spirit. That's two, and I can't remember the other ones now. I'd have to look at it. Huh? Did we? I don't remember the other ones at this point. I, I'm sitting here trying to remember the other ones. So, so that's verse 5. We're looking at this baptism. We're in this transition period. Jesus is teaching them. And so then we move to verse 6. And in verse 6, he begins to say, So when they had come, they were asking him, saying, This is the apostle speaking, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom is Israel? As you look here at other times, there was a big group of people gathered, especially, I believe, when you look in Luke toward the end of the gospel, this kind of similar narrative. There's a, a vast people. But here... When Jesus is speaking, he really appears to be speaking to just those direct apostles, um, is who he chose to be speaking to. Um, and this is really the last recorded conversation you're going to see Jesus have with these apostles. Um, he doesn't have another one after this. But what are they hoping for? They're wanting that national independence, that national uh, uh, country, the recognition. They're wanting that conquering earthly king. So now that we've already witnessed your miracles here, we've already uh, witnessed your crucifixion, we've uh, witnessed your resurrection, great, now is the time to usher in this earthly kingdom that we can ruin. And guess what? They wanted their places too. They knew that if he established this earthly kingdom, they were going to get some authority, so they thought. You you see that a couple of different times, really, in the Gospels. Uh, I know Mark talks about it a lot, but they thought, well, man, if he's going to bring this kingdom in, it's great for us. We're going to get all this authority that comes with it. You remember? They were arguing at one time. You know, who's going to set it as right hand? Who's you know? They're still looking in earthly terms of what's going on, even though he's just told them about the kingdom of God. Their mind is still earthly. And I think every one of us gets guilty of that because I think sometimes we forget, I know I do, that though we live in this world, though we're part of this world, this is what's the song, this is not our home. We are we should be more um heavenly minded, if you will. We should be looking for heaven. Yeah, we want to do things here and uh we want to enjoy our family, we want to that, that that's fine. But we still should be heavenly minded, not so much earthly Mind it, because these apostles are seeing the same thing. They are seeing the kingdom of God through their eyes. Same one. Same one. What was the old? Uh, oh, they want to. They. I mean, maybe this would be a bad way to put it. But they would almost, what would they do if you were non-Jewish at that point? I mean, some of them, not the, maybe not the apostles that have been with Jesus, but you think of the ones that want the kingdom, wanted Israel to be the kingdom, especially some of those ruling class that they're still having to deal with a little bit. We see that as you move through. I think what they would have done if it would have been established. I mean, they would have ruled really with a, with an iron fist as those, as those religious leaders. I mean, 
throughout the Old Testament. The problem, I mean, just like we talked, I, I said and meant last week. I mean, you look at that parable that we talked about last week in, in the sermon. You look at that and that parable, like you're talking about every time, what's he do? He sends the prophets. What do the prophets do? The prophets proclaim the words of the Lord. And what do they do to the prophets? Psalm and half, stone them, kill them. You know, what was Jeremiah? They call it the weeping prophet. They called it, I think it was him. They put in the cistern. They just threw him into the cistern. They left him in the cistern. And so, I mean, it's throughout. It's always, here's your prophet. Here's what he says. Well, let's just kill him. Or let's just don't. It is. People don't want to listen to the preacher and they don't want to listen to the word because they come under Christ's rule because, number one, they have to repent. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it any better, both of you guys, with they don't want authority. They don't want to submit. What what is people even in the Christian circles, you and I've talked about this, they have a problem with lordship and lordship salvation that um, you know, I used to hear people, and I'm sure everybody in here has all the time, say, you make him Lord. It's like, no, we don't. He is Lord. We submit to his Lordship. And there's people that do not want to submit to his Lordship. They will not submit to his Lordship. I mean, even people in churches today do the same thing. Go ahead. John MacArthur was talking about how he was at a conference, and he said a well-known pastor who he would not mention the name, and they said to him, uh, you're one of those Lordship salvation I don't know if there's any other way to be saved. We are all in submission to the Lord. You recognize it or not. You know, you everyone has a Lord to submit to. You either will submit to him now, or one day you'll fall on your knees and trust in the Lord, or it'll be too late. There is a when you're talking about the Lordship and you're talking about that, it's ironic. You know, <laughs> providence of God, I guess. But you 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 read this and he talks about in there where at one point all the nations even or all the people of all nations, they're going to submit, they're going to cry, they're going to sing, they're going to acknowledge. You know, like I said, you can do it now or you can do it later, but you're going to acknowledge. Um, Paul said that Jesus was the name of God, the Father of the Son, above all other names, and without that name, every knee will bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every knee. Doesn't matter who you are. Every Muslim, every Buddhist, every Jew, every Christian, every atheist, doesn't matter. Exactly. And, go ahead, would somebody else fix that something? Um, yeah, and so. <laughs> no, don't let him. <laughs> Go ahead. I've got time. No, you don't. Jody would have said, well, back in Revelation, could you please? <laughs> I love you, Jody. <laughs> Okay, but you're right. That that is the same problem. They are uh, they're wanting to be in charge. I mean, they're wanting that 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 kingdom uh, done. Uh, but now, as we get at that verse six, now when they had some uh, when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it the time uh, that you're going to restore? But now they're going to hear his. Um, Answer because he's really going to talk about to them to the gift of the spirit. Uh, and that gift of the spirit is that, um, new sign of the new age. Um, but all, like I said, they want to know is 
Is Israel in charge? Are we national independent? Do we have our nation back? And he answers them in verse 7. Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times. I like how he doesn't just flat out, I mean, that could have been a one-word answer. He literally just could have said, you know, when they answer that, Lord, is it time, is it time you're restoring the kingdom of heaven or the, the kingdom of Israel? No. But he just goes, it's not for you to know the times. Um, he doesn't tell them that no directly. And who is fully in charge of the times? Uh, God, the Father. That's who's truly in charge of the times. When Jesus was on earth, and I, they questioned him about the kingdom at, at various times in the Gospels, what's he tell them? It's not, I don't know. That's, that's the Father's determination. Uh, that's the Father's determination that they, that they don't know that, and he tells them many times. Um, I think we can read one. Matthew chapter 13, 32 is what I've got written down. I think that may be one. Let's go check it out and see if it is. Matthew 13, verse 32. That is not it. Mark. Mark, wrong gospel. Begin with an M. That's all I looked at. Had the first one right. Mark 13. At least it didn't say Mark 17. Thirteen, verse thirty-two. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he answers that question that they are going to ask again and act. He answers that while he's on earth before his crucifixion. Before his resurrection, he answers, not not for any of us, no, no, angels know, the Son doesn't know, and he fits in that qualification as the Son. It's only for the Father to know. But they're just going to ask him again. Mark, he answers that question. So what are they to be doing? So we're, go ahead. Be witnesses. Be witnesses. They are to be witnesses to what? The resurrection. Everything. So what are they to do as witnesses? What are we to do as witnesses? Spread what? The gospel, the good news. That is what they are to be doing. They're worried about the earthly kingdom. Is it time now to establish it? Are we in, are we in rule? Are, is our nation in dominant, in power? But in real true respects, they are simply to be proclaiming the good news of Christ. That is the entirety of Christ. That is that He was here. This That God dwelt among us. We witnessed those miracles. He did these things. He was beaten and crucified and then resurrected on the third day. They are to be preaching that, that those good news and that, that it is by God's grace but through Him. And by repentance and faith and that totality of his work, that that grace is available. And through God, that grace is available only through him. And that's their commission. Uh, this appears when you look at scripture to be the last time that they are concerned 
with the imminent nature of God ruling now. This is really the last time that we're going to encounter that. We're not going to encounter them, you know, asking these sorts of questions as we move uh, through this. So they are now, that's the apostles to concern themselves with the spiritual kingdom, that proclamation. Uh, and how do you enter the spiritual kingdom? Through faith and repentance. Hand in hand. Does one come before the other? Faith first, repentance first. I think you could ask ten different people and get ten different answers a lot of times, you know. Okay, so verse 8. But you will receive power, that's the apostles, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And for today, that's as far as we're going to really get. I'm not going to move past that. So there's really a couple elements here that you're going to deal with in this verse. That first element you're going to do deal with is when you receive power. But when do you receive power? And it's answered in that very sentence. Can somebody tell me what it is? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I want you to think about it. It's in the use of the word here, and it's used, it's in the... Uh, it's in the, it's an aorist participle as it's used here. And I know Tom uses that a lot, but I'm going to tell you, it is a, that coming of the Holy Spirit. It is not continuous, but it is definitive that when it comes, uh, the, even though new believers, the Holy Spirit is clearly available. Um, it's available after Pentecost. It dwells with us. It is there with us. Uh, and those who repent and what it says in Acts 2.8 that are baptized in the name of Christ. But if you look at verse 5, because we got to have everything in context, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when we look at verse 5, or verse 8 in context with verse 5, that in light of uh, that the coming of the Holy Spirit that is equivocated, that is equal to the, ba- the baptism of the apostles via the Holy Spirit. And if we look, he uses that word, but you will receive power. Now, can anybody think of the... What would you guess would be a term where power would be used in the Gospels? What would you guess? Anybody? Where did you see Jesus' power and who he is on display? In, in the miracles. In the miracles. So typically when you see that word used power, it's used in the miracles. But in Acts, and I got it wrote down here, in Acts is chapter 4, verse 33, and chapter 6, 8 through 10. In those, that same word is used, but it's used in a different context. It's used now in the context of the proclamation of the word. You will have power in proclaiming the word. Uh, you have the Holy Spirit in proclaiming the word. That power is with you. So it transitions that power, not transitions, but it's used, same word as talking about Jesus' miracles. Now it's used in the proclamation of whose word? Who is the word? Jesus. He's the Logos in John 1.1. 1, 1. 
fulfilling the verse that says, My word will not return to me void. Absolutely. You now have power, spirit filled power, that you can proclaim the gospel. As long as you only proclaim what the gospel is, what the Bible says, and don't enter into your own little machinations when you preach, there's power in that preaching. So my word won't return void, is not the King James. Nobody probably heard me say that. Just it was, I, we. There are some people that will tell you that that verse, "My word will not return void," is literally talking about the King James Bible. Have we not heard that very declaration? No, I mean, not from anybody local. We've heard that from other people. There are certain groups of people that that's what that means. That's why I said that to him because we we have listened to those people's uh, those people over the last few years. Okay, so that word, like I said, the Logos. So now, that's what we're going to see. Uh, so that power. So, if we were to view what follows, that power that is promised in uh, verse 8, that is like we have said, that is being a witness to Christ. Um, throughout the book of Acts, we're going to be taught the role of, of the Spirit in who? Take a guess. Believers. That's what we're going to look at through the act. How that, how the Holy Spirit empowers believers. Does it still happen today? I mean, we're not empowered by something else. We're not indwelt by something else. I mean, we still have, uh, that power through the Holy Spirit to proclaim. There's a song, I know it's the quote song, but there's a song by Jeremy Camp a few years ago. It's the same power, uh, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, from the dead, lives in us. We have that Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So we're not empowered by anything different. Not at all. All right. So. And it's not unique to certain believers. Every believer. Every day, yeah. We all have different gifts, but don't confuse the gifts with the Spirit. So, now here's a question for you. Who was anointed as God's chosen servant throughout the Old Testament? And we see it listed in the New Testament. It's real simple. I'll say his birth, yeah, Jesus. Jesus is God's servant, and you see it in Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, 42, 1. Luke, again, chapter 4, 8, verses 18 through uh, 21. And then once again, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, verses 1 to 2. And now, the very chosen one, that is God's servant in those both Old and New Testament. He, that very servant, now promises that the that they will be empowered by um, a different spirit than His ministry. No, it goes piggybacks what you were saying. They are now promised that all those promises that was given to Him. All that promise is not the promise given to him, but the, the, the same spirit that empowered him to achieve his ministry is now going to empower them to continue that ministry. So, 
The promise of this, that spirit here recalls Isaiah 32.15. So let's read Isaiah 32.15. Until the spirit is poured out upon us from high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field considered a forest. It is literally, uh, that verse speaks of that desolation of Israel, but that that's going to continue until when? Until the Spirit is poured out from upon high. The gift of the Holy Spirit, it is a, it is God's gift, would be the best way to say it, that the end time, Restoration has begun. It has began uh, the end time restoration. Uh, but the spirit is specifically given for basically the worldwide mission. mission. And we hear about uh, the day of the Lord spoken about a lot of times in the Old Testament. Jeremiah speaks of it a lot. But the day of the Lord and all that entails, this is delayed. As this mission is being carried out, I don't, maybe not delayed would be the proper word. It's all happening in God's ordained time, but, you know, I, I guess we could put it that way. But as Christians, uh, we have to live with that tension of knowing that the, the work of God's gospel, the gospel, and we have to, we have to understand that that is essential to the end times narrative. I'm not, this is not an end times discussion we do that. I'm just talking about when God consummates everything, that it is all tangled together. That commission is going to be done as we move through that. Um, but that date will never be calculated by us. Um, and I still think that I don't know that we'll ever fully understand in our lifetime the nature of God's determinate end, you know, in our time. I mean, we know the determinant of what it is, but I mean, what it's going to play out in our earthly mind. So that is all we will get to today. Would there be anything else to add to this? This morning. Uh, one thing I will say, was there anybody that come in? Um,